The Guardian. Romance and royalty, Britain and in fact really the entire world preparing for one very special wedding. We're, we're hugely excited and uh, it's, you know, we're looking forward to spending the rest of the time, you know, the rest of our lives together. The wedding list will be lengthy but the couple is said to be deeply conscious of the economic times and want to avoid any impression of decadence. It may be costing the economy £5 billion in lost productivity but Britain's going royal wedding crazy. Yes, for all the spirit levels, social mobility action plans and inequality task forces, it's details of multi-tiered cakes and horse-drawn carriages that we crave. Or do we? This is the Business Podcast with me, Adit Chakraborty, and this week we're talking about the wealth gap. Does a growing super-rich damage society? Or does a rising tide lift all boats? I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. That 1960s commie sketch has achieved classic status. But is it a relic? Or do 5,000 royal wedding street parties point to a Britain celebrating its class divide? Joining me to discuss this, I have in the studio Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee, author and professor of human geography Danny Dawling, head of the Progressive Conservatism Project at the think tank Demos, Max Wynne Cowie, and social research consultant Pete Saunders. Welcome to you all. Danny, your latest book is called So You Think You Know About Britain. What does the Kate and Will nuptials, what does that tell us about modern Britain? There'll be an awful amount written about this wedding. There'll be an awful, awful amount written about it for years and years and years to come. If you want one fact about the wedding I think is interesting, it's the fact that he's marrying a girl who went to the same school as the girl who married the Prime Minister, who went to the same school as the girl who married the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, so there is one school, Marble Girls, which is... You're producing a lot of wives of the elite of Britain, and this is, a, I think, quite an unusual country given we've got, I don't know, 20,000 secondary schools, an enormous number, that a tiny number of schools account for so many people at the top of our society. Polly, Danny's just given us the, that they're all, it's all the elite reproducing themselves argument, but isn't Kate Middleton of coal mining stock originally and weren't her parents employed by BA? I think sociologically you'd say, well, her parents are multimillionaires and it's always been the case. You go right back, you know, as many centuries as you like. The aristocracy has refreshed itself in this country, didn't in Spain, uh, by marrying into trade, marries money. Uh, they run out of money, they spend money, their sons are wastrels, so they find themselves, you know, a rich rich girl from a, an enterprising family. And that's the way aristocracy has always been. You know, the idea that there is this bloodline, sacred bloodline. I mean, you know, look at the royal bloodline, for heaven's sake. Um, it's all a lot of nonsense. It's myth and fantasy. Okay, Danny, back to you. Let's um, let's just get a picture. If we're talking about inequality in Britain, what does what, what does it look like now? How big a problem is it? Of the world's twenty-five richest countries that have at least a million people, uh, the UK ranks fourth as the fourth most unequal by income. It probably ranks higher by wealth, but wealth statistics are harder to get. Just before the general election, Nick Clegg complained that under New Labour. The ratio between the best off fifth and the worst off fifth had increased from 6.9 to 1 to 7.2 to 1. Uh, at that rate of increase in inequality, if you'd had another 
three sets of 13 years of new labour, we'd have become as unequal as the United States. So Nick Clegg was incensed about this increase in inequality. My best estimates um, in that Think You Know About Britain book, I've tried to guess, and it is guess at this moment, what's happened in the last year since the new government has come in. And I think we're moving far more rapidly towards becoming as unequal as the United States, if not overtaking them. The most telling, or the un, not directly related statistic on that, is that the IMF forecast for 2015 is that for the first time since the IMF have ever recorded this, the UK will spend a lower percentage of its GDP on public services on the states than any other large Western European country and lower than the United States of America. So we are cutting spending on the poor and on services faster as a proportion of our GDP, which in some ways is declining, than anywhere else. And we're going to become, if you like, more neoconservative than the United States if the plans go ahead, according to the statistics of the IMF. Peter Saunders, would you go along with that? <clears throat> well, I think... Um Historically, when economies have contracted, income inequality has actually compressed rather than uh, got worse. I mean, if you look at the 1970s, for example, in Britain, income inequality reduced as the economy was going into recession. This is the thing that's always puzzled me about the left believing that we all uh, lead a better life if income uh, inequalities are compressed, because by and large, in the boom years is when uh, the inequality gets worse, largely because people in the top 1% or 5% tend to do very well in booms while uh, in recessions. The people but they, at the they bottom... compressed all the way from the 1930s <coughs> through to the 1970s, Peter. All the way from the 19, from even from the 1920s through to the 1970s, income inequality is compressed on almost all years. And the additional point, which we were talking about, about uh, spending cuts as a proportion of GDP, again, if we take long-term statistics, you'll see that spending, government spending in this country, as in most Western countries, uh, has been escalating ever since the Second World War. Uh, even the Thatcher years, when everybody went on about the dreadful cuts, that uh, in 89-90, when Thatcher left office, government spending as a proportion of GDP was exactly the same as it was in 79 when Thatcher came into office, that no government has ever succeeded, and I don't think this one will, in cutting uh, spending as a proportion of GDP. It's very interesting that one of the great gurus of uh, the centre-left in this country, John Maynard Keynes, back in the 30s, when asked what do you think would be a dangerous level of public spending, said it shouldn't go above 25%. Of GDP, it's now at around I think forty four percent. He was he was talking at a time when the state was much smaller than it is now. Yes, indeed. Um, he thought but, it would but, be but, appalling but, if it got as large. But as before we now. get into talking about spending cuts and all the rest of it, th that picture about uh, a society that's becoming vastly more unequal than it has been in in post war history, Peter, do you go along with that? I think I think inequality, income inequality. I think wealth inequality is incidentally, Danny. We actually rank a lot in your terms better. The number of, where, for example, the wealth inequalities are much less than they are in Scandinavia, uh, largely because far more British people have uh, pension assets than in Scandinavia, where they were reliant on state handouts in their retirement. So uh, the wealth distribution, we actually look rather good on a lot of these international comparisons. Income distribution, yes, we are a more than average unequal country. I mean, in, in, in Tony Blair's terms, I'm relaxed about that. And so, incidentally, are the great majority of the British people. I mean, a report just out this week by Policy Exchange... Asking people about fairness, what, what comes through very clearly in that report is what people are concerned about is why people have the incomes they have, not how much income they have. The concern is do people deserve the money they're getting because they've worked hard and they're talented? And if they do, then three quarters of the British population are very happy to see income inequalities as large as we've got. I think the left is completely off beam on what the problem is. The problem is not 
your politics of envy, those, that lot have got a lot more than, than I've got. The problem is, if there is a problem, why have that lot got a lot more than I've got? Uh, and that's the meritocracy issue. Well, Peter, I'm, I'm glad you said that because you've taken us neatly into the next clip. Uh, because this debate is an old one. 20 years ago, a young Lib Dem MP called Simon Hughes had this confrontation with Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher. There is one statistic that I understand is not, however, challengeable. And that is that over her 11 years, the gap between the richest 10% and the poorest 10% in this country has widened substantially. Mr Speaker, all levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy. Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. Yes, it came out. He didn't intend it to, but he did. Max Wincowie, that's the classic Conservative argument against all this inequality nonsense, isn't it? Well, I, I disagree with you that it's the classic Conservative argument. I think it's a very neoliberal argument. I think it's an argument that Thatcher uh, beat to death. But I don't think it's necessarily uh, classic of Conservatism in this country at all, actually. Um, the, the, what that clip shows us and, and reminds us of is how polarised this, this debate is in this country. And I think that the, the fault for that lies on both sides. On one side, you have... Um, kind of ayatollahs of inequality like Richard Wilkinson who go around telling us that it's not just a problem but it's the only problem and pronouncing fatwa on anyone who dares to suggest there may be additional issues. And on the other you have neoliberals just echoing Thatcherite arguments uh, despite a, a huge amount of, of evidence that income inequality and particular kinds of income inequality as well are profoundly damaging for society in a way that conservatives who believe uh, in, in civic engagement, in social action etc should be very concerned about. Hang on, if you want to talk about where the Conservative Party or conser conservatism stands against inequality, are you telling me that neoliberalism and sort of being relaxed about inequality, uh, are you telling me that strain of conservative thinking is now dead? No, absolutely not. That strain of thinking is alive and well. well like probably a, dominant still. Like a, I, I would disagree about that, actually. Um, what I'm arguing is not that the, the strain of neoliberalism is dead, as it's not in the Labour Party, as I'm sure Polly would agree. Um, it's that it's not the entirety of conservative thought. And One Nation conservatism in this country uh, has not always uh, declared itself kind of uh, ambivalent or even happy about inequality at all. Um, and there's a huge track record in this country of conservative governments uh, intervening in order to try and shape society and shape our economic lives and that's a tradition that conservatism needs to tap back into. Polly, Max has uh, call, called it neoliberalism but uh, we, we might put it in more human terms actually there was a strain of thinking which, which was relaxed about the rich getting richer as long as the economy just grew faster and the poor got richer too uh, and that there was a trade-off between inequality and sort of economic vibrancy. Yes, I think that was very much Labour's view, that if um, the city could be milked for as much, as long as they pay their taxes, Mandelson added, the, the rider to that relaxed remark. Um, but of course, it didn't really work that way, because one thing, they didn't pay their taxes. Large numbers of people avoided taxes on a huge scale. The sorts of sums of money the city earned were regarded as grotesque. And what Peter just said about public attitudes towards fairness is very complicated. It depends what question you ask. Yes, people think he should be able to earn whatever he wants. He's invented things. He's created a business. What do they think about footballers? Very mixed, despite the fact that you can't actually see what a footballer does every Saturday, whether he's 
worth it or not. If you ask them about bankers and financiers or chief executives of you know, productive companies, they want them to be earning far, far less than they're earning now. They are really, people are very angry about high pay and they don't even know the half of it because people are remarkably ignorant about what others earned. One of the reasons why we were, as, as, as Danny just said, so much more equal in the 1970s and, and in that era was that people knew what other people earned. It was major news because there were strikes, because trade unions were in the news. Everybody knew what a miner, what a steel worker uh, and, what, and, and, and what their bosses earned. Now people are extraordinarily ignorant about if you ask them where are you on the scale, everybody puts themselves much nearer the middle than they are. They misunderstand how far stretched and how fast is stretching the bottom to the top and the middle gets stretched too. I, I just think that that knowledge, you know, politicians should be putting that knowledge out there all the time. This is what's happening. Because although people may be relaxed about some sorts of inequality, if you say to almost anyone, however right wing, are you quite happy for this to go on getting more and more unequal very fast and accelerating forever so that the, the bottom and the top are completely out of touch with each other, then people get alarmed. They don't like the idea that it's infinite. Uh, to be clear, though, the public are very enthusiastic about some forms of inequality. So the inequality between uh, the, the hope for inequality between those who go out and work for a living and between those who rely on the state, that's something the public are very enthusiastic about. And they're very disgruntled and disappointed that that inequality uh, isn't as, as, as big as they would hope. So they discriminate between those who are deserving and not yes, deserving absolutely. on benefits. Absolutely. And, and you're right to suggest that as well as talking about the deserving and undeserving poor, the public have quite a clear conception of the deserving and undeserving rich. And I think you, the point about transparency, as you say, is that it equips people to make their judgments of what people should be paid or what they think is a is a reasonable sum uh, in an informed way and I think that pay transparency in the public sector is, is a first step on this and I do think that it's important that people understand how much the chief executive of a PCT is paid and the fact that it's 15 or 16 times that of a healthcare assistant but that the government really ought to be much bolder on this and say that in the private sector you know fair enough we can't instruct you on what to pay people and it would be wrong for us to, to intervene in that way but we can tell you that you must make it clear in a, in a transparent and less than opaque way what it is that you're remunerating your staff do you i mean we already know from publicly listed companies how much they pay their board of directors how much further do you want that transparency to go then um, i think that across the board companies when they report on their financial status should tell the public how much they're paying in the same way, publicly listed companies the, and private companies. Yeah, both. indeed. In the same way, uh, by the way, that we're now expecting local authorities to tell the world which people fall in which pay bands and how much that is. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. We expect companies to report all kind of things. Peter, back to you on this. You, I mean, you're responsible for this part of the argument because we're talking about British social attitudes, which was what you brought into the conversation. But just you personally, is it your contention that inequality doesn't matter so much? Um, Yes, I, I, I think I think there's a legitimate and important debate to be had, which is an ethical debate, which by and large lines up between left and right historically, where the left feel that uh, large inequalities are in some way offensive, and I can understand that. I used to be on the left myself, I used to argue that. Uh, and the right feels that uh, as long as uh, people have come by those what, their assets and, and incomes legitimately, uh, un under the rules uh, that apply to everybody, then, then there's nothing wrong with it. And that the people who object to it, by and large, 
are being envious. And I think that is the position I tend to take now. I think, I know you don't want to talk about the spirit level, but the spirit level has been a, a major intervention in this debate because what Wilkinson and Pickett tried to do was to turn an ethical debate into a social scientific one by saying there is evidence for the left's position that, that, that these in income inequalities are actually bad for everybody. Now, that book does not stand up. For, we won't go into the reasons. I know you don't want to. Uh, but really, it is a trash book. Uh, which is still being peddled. I have, I have to come back at this. That's your, that's your opinion. Uh, and earlier, Max, you described it. The first time I've ever heard mild-mannered Richard Wilkinson <laughs> described as an ayatollah. Well, first I, I time just... I've ever heard him described as mild-mannered. <laughs> you should see him speak. He's far too mild-mannered, I think, sometimes. The, the spirit-level um, book, from the point of view of a large number, in fact, the majority of academics that I know working in social science in Britain, is well respected, and this is how I put it. Yeah, this but is all the academics working in social science are on the left. Well, hang on, hang on. Well, percent of let, let me, professors describe themselves as left wing. Well, maybe there's a reason why. Maybe they've actually worked, studied, and realised that there's a, a side to be on that makes sense if you're interested in society. Uh, but my point about the spirit level, if, when I looked at the evidence in the spirit level, this is how I saw it. It's a whole series of correlations which look remarkably similar in strength and in the amount you may worry about them, to the correlations we first saw in the 1950s between the rate of smoking of doctors and their chances of getting lung cancer. Now, it could have been that those early people studying something as complicated and as strange as cancer and how much people smoke could have been onto something completely wrong. Now, the tobacco companies funded people to attack the original stuff saying that smoking was bad for you. The level of correlation that, that Richard Wilkins and Kate Pickett have come up with is no stronger than the early smoking stuff. There are attacks on them. They're being funded in many cases by people who like inequality, very rich individuals. I think, as far as I can see, the many hundreds of papers that come out from academia who, so who, far... Who, who have are been... these rich individuals that are funding the attacks on them? Who funds a policy exchange? Do you know? Should we, should we I... not talk about who can... funds a policy exchange? Let's just have a... But, kind why, of... but why not? If we're going to understand the debate in Britain, I'm and we're going to understand to why so many funds. people... I'm Look, perfectly happy to talk about uh, Sorry, funds I, I was, I was speaking about this. Yeah. It is very... British social attitudes are very interesting because if you look at social attitudes across European countries in America, you'll find that in America there is most support for a great inequality, the poor are against the inheritance tax. Support for inequality reduces in countries as countries become more equal in general, which is a generalisation. Mm. Now, it seems to be very hard to think that that is not influenced by depression, it's not influenced by lobby groups, and the fact that very rich individuals in the United States of America in particular, but also in Britain, fund research which favours their case, is unlikely to have no impact. Otherwise, why would they spend their money on this? Can, can I just, um, Danny, to, to point something out? I mean, I am I, not a statistician. And so my understanding of, of whether the spirit level is absolutely right or absolutely wrong is limited. My, my, quest, my problem with, with the way in which the, the, the spirit level, my problem is with how it's been used. And the way in which it's been used is to close down debate on, on the left, certainly, about how we talk about inequality, what kinds of inequality matter, because the authors of that book take an incredibly dogmatic line. And you're right to say that it's a series of correlations. And, and you know, they're very uh, impressive and depressing, even to a, 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 a Tory sorry, like Sorry, Mac, I can't let this go on. They are not impressive. Not one of those correlations controls for third variables which is an elementary thing that you do and all of those correlations depend on a cultural distinction that we've known about for donkey's years between the Scandinavian countries and the Anglo countries and what the what that book is picking up on is the fact that Scandinavia tends to do rather better on a lot of these indicators than the Anglo countries do for reasons I would say because of cultural homogeneity the most I, I actually no, no, the sorry, sorry yeah. I'm, I'm going to close down <laughs> it we has have, been we have, we, 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 we've done, we have had both the arguments 
for the spirit level and the arguments made in it and the arguments against it too. But I was much more interested in the point that Max has raised, which was what kinds of inequality do we think are acceptable? Danny, do you want to answer that? Well, the, the, the thing I find most interesting for looking at the evidence on this is that the if there is a problem with inequality, and again, it's early years because these affluent countries have only in the last couple of decades become rich enough for inequality to matter more than overall levels of wealth. If there is a problem, and Japan is, is the best place to look at this, it appears to be that having a group of very rich people is actually more problematic uh, than having inequality lower down the scale. Um, now, that is circumstantial evidence, but what, how Japan differs, and Japan, of course, is the most equal of, of the rich affluent countries, how Japan differs from many other countries, it's a low-taxing country, mm. is that it's, it's best off if the people are not actually that rich, and, and in fact have been getting poorer in the long uh, recession in Japan. So it's having a group of people who are extremely wealthy at the top and the effect that that has on the people just beneath them who concentrate more and more on trying to get money because they want to reach the people just above them and so on. So I think, and this isn't in the spirit level, but I think it's where the spirit level begins to take us next, is that different kinds of inequality, as Max said he wanted the debate to open up, different kinds of inequalities matter more than others. And riches at the top appear to downgrade everything at the bottom in terms of how we think and how we act and how many many people all the way up and down the social scale feel badly off including quite a few millionaires because of people above them getting so much richer so than they are it, is it a bubble of having super rich people at the top that makes that's particularly well, a pernicious form in the culture super rich is particularly da- is particularly dangerous on the effect it has but but the overall average income and wealth of the best off fifth i think it appears to be if you're going to pick out one problem of inequality uh that is more strongly associated with these social harms than the bottom. And that is interesting, and that would cause all kinds of debate on the, on the left, because uh, standard policy on the left has been we must do whatever we can for the very poorest 10 or 20%. Let's try not to talk too much about the richest. We want to tax them. Now, if there's actually a problem of having people moving away from the rest of society at the top, and that's a bigger problem than inequality lower down the scale, it's very interesting. It also gives you a very nice solution because it's, it's not that hard to reduce income inequalities at the top. Uh, my favourite thing is the land value tax, but there are numerous ways in which you can do it. And if you're a country running out of money, it may be far better to tax the rich on the value of their land than to cut benefits from people at the we, bottom we, end could, of society. We could ship all the bankers offshore. We could ship them all out to Zurich no, 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 and no, Frankfurt, land value and then tax. we're all going to be a lot better off. No, no, no tax I mean, on the value of land. Argument. You can't ship it's land, it's Peter. Land value tax and, is great because you and can't realize, ship and land. And I realise that you don't want to get into issues of evidence, but I'm afraid you have to. Every time a claim is made that's wrong, we have to challenge it. And the claim that's just been made about Japan is wrong. It's one of the problems in the spirit level again, that Japan in the spirit level is put forward as the most equal country, uh, which is based on World Bank data. The World Bank data only uh, counts 60% of the income earners in Japan. If you no, look no, at the no. OECD data, the which OECD includes... OECD is based on a very small survey and is wrong. The Peter, OECD I, data I have is two not studies wrong. on Japan, Japan now. Japan ranks 13th out yeah. of 30. Peter, I'm it doing two studies of inequality path. on Japan now to confirm that the 3.5 to 1 ratio of Japan is correct. And other than the OECD genie based on a tiny sample, I can find no data that contradicts the spirit level of Japan. And the reason why I'm looking at Japan in great detail is it is so interesting because it is different from the Scandinavian model and if you've worked in social science for 20 years like me you do get a bit bored of the Scandinavian model. It's quite interesting too about Japan uh, that they've just come up to the reality of what it is to be a low tax low public service country and it hasn't been good in dealing with their 
calamity. They just have had many, many too few uh, public services available to help people in an emergency. It's just not there. They don't have the social infrastructure that, other, you know, if this had happened in Scandinavia, would have been a very different but story it, about how quickly they got back on but their But when it feet. happened in the United States, if you look at Katrina, you see an awful situation there. Uh, I wonder what would happen if a similar thing happened in the UK, and I suspect we would be a bit more like the USA in how we dealt with it than Japan, where they lack the public services. The actual will of seeing other people as like you was much higher than it has been in the United States under Katrina. Our our charity giving, for example, is much higher than in Scandinavia and in the continental European countries. How you can say that we would not respond as a people as well as the Scandinavians when we give much higher levels? Uh, We we can't. We can't can't know how. American charity level is very high, but they but they did not respond well to Katrina. I, I do think it's problematic to boil. Uh, the response down to the level of public service and, you know, to to pick up on, which I think is the most important argument about the inequality uh, debate, to pick up on what Polly said about how Japan responded. Okay, so perhaps there are criticisms to be made uh, on political leadership and on public services available to the Japanese people in the the wake of the disaster. But the the spirit of collectivism, the the civic responsibility, the the much-vaunted stoicism uh, is fundamentally important. You know, I'm a a conservative and I'm, I suppose, um, and a uh, Cameroon, as it were, and the big society is very important to my worldview and my political view. Now, I don't uh, perceive that the big society is an achievable notion if we live in a society which lacks what seems to be there in Japan, which is a sense of social fabric and a sense of uh, collective responsibility. And it's it's on that front that I think inequality uh, is particularly problematic and pernicious because uh, fair enough there are disagreements about the, the the evidence for it but the argument in the spiritual level is very persuasive to me that the the impact of inequality on the well-being of communities and on their cohesion is very problematic and that that has and we know that You're absolutely right about that. And what's going on now as we become more unequal is the increasing othering of the people at the bottom. Ah, not people like us, the people like Katrina. Uh, They're not not part of our society. Increasingly, as you get the wider stretch, the ones at the bottom can be described and are constantly with the deserving, non-deserving definitions and all of that endless daily attacks on people who draw benefits or people who are not got much money, though most of the poor are in work. Um, are described as you know some outcast, other caste, and that's an effect of, of inequality, as well as an, a cause, it's a spiral. But don't you think that it is also an effect of the way in which uh, kind of post hoc redistributive measures have been used surreptitiously in order to address this problem, in having, instead of having a kind of clear and open argument about what we do about inequality? And that has created a feeling of suspicion and a feeling that our benefits and welfare systems are not reciprocal and not fair. And Labour talked about a lot and were proud of. I they think didn't talk. The, they didn't talk about were, them in terms of redistribution. You know, they talked. Well, they did. They said the tax credits were there for. Well, children, one, for one problem we have with all of this is that the current world we live in, a world of, of great affluence for a few rich countries, is very recent. So we are scrabbling around, looking at a tiny number of, of examples. I, mean, I, I base what I do on twenty-five richest countries. It's only the last twenty years' experience of twenty-five richest countries. The key thing is is that nowhere's anywhere near utopia. There are problems in every country. Um, but many, many other countries, the vast majority of the affluent countries, do things differently from us. And in some ways that either we somehow think that we are superior or we can learn a lot of lessons from the majority of them. And most of them 
people are much more similar in terms of their income and lifestyles, who they can mix with, who they go to school with, than us. It's not necessarily our fault. There are particular peculiar reasons, not least not being invaded successfully for almost, well, for a millennium. Uh, there are peculiar reasons why Britain is like it is. Um, but one problem of these peculiar reasons is we find it very hard to remember that we're in Europe and to learn from Europe. And we find it very hard not to always look at the United States of America, which is not necessarily a brilliant model of a functioning good society. Okay, uh, well, I think that actually takes us quite neatly on to the, next, the last section, which is on current government. It is simply unacceptable, Mr Speaker, that so many of our children have their life chances shaped by the circumstances of their birth. Gaps in development between children from different backgrounds can be detected even at birth. By the age of five, bright children from poorer backgrounds have been overtaken by less bright children from richer ones. And from this point on, the gaps tend to widen still further. Nick Clegg there laying out the gospel of social mobility. Max, that seems to be this coalition's answer to the wealth gap, is actually just to give people more uh, opportunity. Well, it's, it's a way of balancing the competing kind of claims of fairness. So that, as we've already established, there's a claim of fairness around uh, absolute equality. There's a claim of fairness around reciprocity and merit. And, and social mobility is a way of trying to understand fairness in a more balanced and nuanced way. I think that the, the government's social mobility strategy is, is you know, by no means a, a, a whole answer in itself, but is to be commended for, for several of the things that it does and that it places focus on. The early years of children is incredibly important, and the pupil premium will is, is a redistributive measure that is focused on the, the services and opportunities that children receive rather than simply placing cash into the hands of parents and making them more and more dependent. These are things that should be commended by the left as well as by anyone else. Well... Peter, let's go to you first, because if you poo-poo dealing with inequality, are you happy with dealing with social mobility? I think social mobility is crucial, and uh, of course it's a double-edged sword because it means people, people go up move down, down if, if yeah. people move up, and people don't like moving down. But uh, the, 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 the attitudinal data that I mentioned earlier from Policy Exchange Report this week, I mean, I've got the figures in front of me. The question was, in a fair society, people's incomes should depend on how hard they work and how talented they are. Now, that's a meritocracy question. 85% agree with that, 8% disagree with it. It, it, hugely more support for that than there is for the proposal that in a fair society nobody should get an income a lot bigger or a lot smaller than anybody else. Now, the, my, my Peter, concern... Can I ask you a quick question about that? Yeah, because because I, I think that figure is representative of what British people think. What would that lead you to think about inheritance tax? Well, I because, think... It, I, because I think that is unearned and unmeritocratic yes, wealth in, in people's Inheritance hands. is a genuine moral dilemma. Yeah. Uh, for me and for many other people, because on the one hand, it is clearly antithetical to the idea of equal opportunities at the starting gate. And I mean, Emil Durkheim, the great 19th century sociologist, was opposed to inheritance for precisely that reason. He was a meritocrat. He believed that a cohesive society doesn't have to be an equal one, but it needs to be one where people feel that their talents are going to be rewarded. And inheritance gets in the way of that. Equally, of course, the problem is that very often people's motivation for improving themselves and building up assets is they want to improve the life of their children, which is a perfectly legitimate aspiration and all this stuff we've heard in the last two or three weeks about Clegg and Cameron going on about parents with sharp elbows trying to get their trying to get their kids into into Oxbridge I I, I think rang a very bad vibe with a lot of people because they said well what's wrong with trying to do the best for my children so there's a genuine dilemma there but if I can just try the final point about this what worried me about the the uh, the coalition's strategy about mobility is the message that's coming out which is that we have a major problem um uh, one one minister went on on radio four uh, program and said and I, I i wrote it down as he said it he said invariably in this country if you're born poor you die poor 
I went home and looked up the evidence on that. And actually, invariably, 89% of kids who are born poor do not end up poor when they get to adulthood. Now, it's that kind of statement that, that is Age doing what? such what damage. What cohort are you talking That's about? the National Child Development what, Study, what 1950, Which year? 19? the 1958 cohort, when they get to, 90, to age 33. But we know it changed after the 1970 cohort. No, a different story. Well, Polly, here we go again on evidence. We haven't got time to go into it. But really, the 70 cohort is very, very similar to the 58 cohort. The differences have been exaggerated beyond beyond all compare. The, the basic point is that, of course, we don't... You started off with the royal wedding. The problem we have in this country, I think, is that we've got a monarchy and an aristocracy which symbolically send out a message that we are not a meritocracy and that it's all carved up and you, you know... And it's that sort of layer of 0.1% of the population, which is clearly not meritocratic, and Henley and Ascot and the House of Lords and all that stuff. What about which, Russians owning football clubs? Do you, would you, where, where would you put that in that? I, I, think, I, I, I personally think it's a shame that our football clubs are being bought up by Russian mafiosi and, and sheikhs and what have you. But, I mean, I, 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 I don't want to live in a society where the government is strong enough to stop that happening, because I think that that is actually much more of a threat than, than, than the threat of... So, hang on, but just to pick you up on that... Are you saying that the problem is that they're Russian and Arab or it's a problem that they've just got huge amounts of wealth? So are you basically agreeing with Danny Dawling's argument that, that having a super rich of any kind, whether new or old, is a problem? No, I don't think having a super rich is a problem, provided they have come by it legitimately. I mean, that's, that's been my message all the way through this discussion. OK. Polly, social mobility, does it, does it do it for you? Well, it's a nonsense argument. All politicians have always been in favour of equality of opportunity uh, and virtually all politicians against the ideas of equality of outcome. Uh, the point is you can't have one without the other, that the only places where there is a reasonable amount of social mobility are the countries that are also more equal. And when you stop and think about it, you know, when Tony Blair talks of moving about two babies born next door to each other in the cot in the maternity ward and they should both have the same chance, you say, well, yeah, fine, but but they haven't, have they? Because one is dirt poor coming from a, a background where the chances of succeeding are infinitely less than the other. So unless they start the race reasonably within within reasonable distance you know, nobody's arguing for total equality we won't even argue about how much or but 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 some sort of level of of, of, of sameness of course i haven't got the same Max, and as for you know <laughs> just going back to this question about you know 89 percent made it there was an era the 1950 you know the 1960s 50s 60s of a huge upward mobility when there was a big change from blue collar to white collar work to home ownership, to all of those things, it isn't going to happen again. It means that when we look back at those figures, they're very deceptive. because And it wasn't about their education or anything else. It was about the pull of the jobs that were created. That So lots of kids who left school at 16 got pulled up into quite high-flying white-collar jobs simply because there was the need for them. So how come that's so not going to happen how again. How come so many middle-class kids fell in that same period? How come only half we of went, children born into the middle class stayed in it? We well, went from a two-thirds working class, blue-collar, to a one-third working class, blue-collar. So yes, there was an enormous social change. It was nothing to do, with really, with opportunities through schools or income. It was through the, simply through the pull of the jobs available Max, and what the economy demanded. 
Max, do you want to come in? Um, yes, but not not on not on that particular no, d- d- argument, depend, which I depend, cannot hope to contribute. Defend no, the, the idea that you're just peddling motherhood and apple pie. Um, well, I happen to like both motherhood and apple pie. The the social mobility is is not a nonsense. Social mobility is 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 uh, crucial to a society in which uh, people are seen to be rewarded for doing good and right things. And and that, and I think to dismiss it out of hand as being I didn't dis- irrelevant. I didn't miss the idea. To... What I meant was the idea that it was going to happen in a country. This in. Well, I wasn't against the yeah. idea of it because obviously it is a it, it's a sign of a healthy society that people can move up and down but according this, to talent. But it only happens in a healthy society Polly, where people are reasonably but, equal to start within the first Polly, place. But but but. but. Forgive me, but what you're doing there is 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 precisely what what you know the, the, the spirit level does, and and the argument about this often does, which is that it completely uh, ignores any other factors, and 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 this, if in my kind of perspective on it, is is the problem that the left has with social mobility arguments. You're right, everyone's in favour of social mobility. Nobody says I like social immobility, apart from some kind of strange feudalist people, white Russian. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Um, but but you know there, there are other factors here apart from the equality. Of outcome for people's parents. There are factors around culture. There are factors around aspirations and expectations. There are factors around uh, the communities that people are brought up in that are not to do directly with money. And there are things you can do about them which don't focus entirely on kind of post hoc redistribution. And one second, one second, Danny. And I think that you do have to concede that whilst the British public has nuanced views about fairness and reciprocity, etc., that they are very clear about not wanting to live in a country that massively redistributes. They're very clear about that. Well, and so we what we have much. to look at, if we, want, if we want to improve social mobility, what we have to look at is things that we can politically do, surely, rather than things that we can dream up that might well work, but which the public yeah. won't wear. On things, uh, my view is that there is, a, there is a strong correlation between income inequality and social mobility because if you're affluent in an unequal country, you do try hard to look after your affluent children because the fall is so high. However, there are variations, and they're some of the most interesting things. The Sutton Trust, for years, has done this brilliant experiment of writing to top people and asking them about their background. And it's amazing how many top people write back. Um, and they like produce the this kind of... talk about themselves. They'd love talking about themselves. And they produce this league table of which are the most and least socially mobile top occupations. The least socially mobile are high court judges, where you're most likely to become a judge if you went to a top public, not private school. The most social mobile are university vice-chancellors, still quite privileged as a group, but the least privileged of all the top groups. And what, if you look at the whole range of occupations it suggests, is that those jobs where it helps, the more you can actually do something, to become a vice-chancellor, you've had to have been an academic before and published a few papers, rather than sit in a chair just pronouncing judgment. The more skill actually required, the more likely there is to be a bit more social mobility. And if you look at that, you then say... Isn't there a great danger that if we live in a very unmobile society, we end up with a lot of judges, particularly, who are just not that able? And hence the debate about our laws, you know, are are partly a debate about the very close society in which our high court judges come from. That's absolutely right, Danny. And, you know, nobody dislikes judges at the moment more than a Tory. But I... The, the fact that you might want to do something about social mobility does not necessarily mean that the thing you do about it is uh, go wholesale for redistribution. I personally am uh, very much of the view that inheritance taxes, as we were discussing earlier, are crucial to improving social mobility. And I think that what you need to do is ring fence where that money is going to demonstrate to people that it is helping in, to, to redress the scales at birth. But the, the, the fact is that you have to come up with solutions to problems that people are going to invest in and agree with. And 
and uh, they're not going to agree with a wholesale redistribution. It's just not... I, I'm not suggesting wholesale redistribution. I mean, I was, inheritance tax fine, but it takes a long time. You've got to wait people die. Land value tax is a bit... Well, everyone does die eventually. Everybody does die. But, but High Court judges, why not simply pay them a little bit la- next year than last year so that people who think you have to have very high income to do a job are slightly put off becoming a judge? Why do we pay some of our officials so much? Paying people at the top a lot attracts people from families who are used to that amount of money and it's very expensive i think we'd still get good judges if we didn't till we get better judges if we didn't waste so much money on what is clearly a group who have been so badly picked and we know they're badly picked because they're from the least socially mobile group of but all what do you what do you about inequality in the private sector then ah well the private sector is harder but you've got to at least start with the public sector and as far yeah. as i'm aware the 20 to 1 ratio has not been agreed we need to get the 21 it's not ratio. no that's right we need to get it agreed in the public sector Having got that agreed, I do what Boris Johnson does with living wage. What Boris does with living wage is says, is says that the GLA will not uh, give a contract to a private company working for London if they pay anybody less than living wage. I think it is a waste of public sector money to hire a private sector firm to do anything, for instance, accounting, to do a job for you if they pay somebody more than 20 times above somebody else in that private. So I would do what Boris Johnson has done for London and say that private sector can be completely free but the minute the private sector begins to take public sector work, it has to sign an undertaking that it will not waste that public sector money by paying the bosses so very much. OK, uh, let's do final thoughts and go around the table. We start. We had a clip from the Frost Report. We had a clip from Simon Hughes tackling Maggie. In 20 years' time, let's begin with you, Max. Where do you think the argument on inequality will go? Um, well, I'll start off by saying I violently agree with Danny um, about what we do about inequality. What we do about inequality is lead from the public sector. And we also then then uh, create ripples from that using procurement, as we've done in other forms of equality legislation, as we've done. And, and that is, in my view, the fair way of balancing our obligation to let people be free in a capitalist society, um, but also our obligation to use taxpayers' money effectively. On where the debate will be in 20 years' time, I hope we'll have moved on from that. I mean, the Will Hutton report on pay in the public sector was incredibly disappointing and incredibly uh, vapid. I hope that we'll have moved on from the idea that when we talk about pay, all we ever have to talk about is how we can pay people in the public sector as much as in the private sector and how we can influence one with the other. That we'll have got to a point where it is understood that the proper way to run a company or any organisation is to have a ratio. I would go lower than the 20 to 1 ratio is to have a ratio which means that you are sharing the proceeds of growth to use a phrase that the Conservative leadership doesn't use anymore um, in a way that is equitable and rewards people and you're not racing away from them. Peter 20 um, years time where's the debate on equality in the land up? Well I hope that we start having the debate about the things that matter rather than the things that don't and the things that matter are social mobility rather than the extent of social inequality and I actually think that the major problem we have is not at the top it's not the high court judges and the bankers uh, that we all get excited about the major problem we have is at the bottom where my real fear is that there's a group which I would estimate at about 5% of the population that is becoming detached from the middle mass of the population the other 95% detached not simply economically, but in in uh, in all sorts of ways, and that I think is a ser- is the serious uh, division that's opening up in our country, and it has to do with long term welfare dependency, uh, and it has to do with the appalling quality of education that those people are being given, and those are the issues that we ought to be sitting around this table talking about, not how to try and stop high court judges earning so much. Polly, I think in twenty years' time, people will be have become greatly shocked at what will have happened in the next four or five years. 
an escalation of the numbers of people living in real poverty far greater than happened under Mrs Thatcher. And after all, Mrs Thatcher, within a very short period of time, uh, changed from a society where one in seven children were poor to one in three. We're going to see that accelerating far faster. If you just look at the first round of cuts, let alone cuts after cuts after cuts for the next four years, uh, and a devastation of the public services on which the most vulnerable depend much more, of uh, the devastation of the cities that are in greatest need of, of help and who are suffering much greater cuts than the shires who've been let off very lightly. Uh, I think there will be a sudden sense that we've taken leave of our senses. Do we want to be living as one society? We don't need arguments about exactly how much equality, but the idea of infinitely expanding inequality will frighten people, and I think we'll see a change in consciousness. Danny Dawling, it says on the blurb of your book that he's published more than 25 books. Quite a few of them have been a bit about inequality. So in 20 years' time, where the argument would be, do you think? Um, I think 20 years' time will be as different as 1951 was from 1931. I think we're at a very peculiar time uh, where right now the wealth of the very richest is continuing to soar while average incomes are about to fall and at the bottom they're falling faster. Um, so I think we're in a period which will have see as much change as 1931 to 51, including some very, very bad years to come in the immediate future. I simply hope that we don't have events like a war in between. Um, but I do think we're entering a period with as much turmoil as then because we have to go back to 1931 to find income and wealth inequalities as great as they are now in Britain. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Leave your thoughts on our blog and we'll come back to them next week. My thanks to Polly Toynbee, Danny Dawling, Max Wincowie and Peter Saunders. The producers Phil Maynard. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.